0: Hi this is Alan talk delighted to be in conversation with a man I very much admire the president and ceo of the Boston Symphony Orchestra Mark Volpe who joined the orchestra in 1997 retires this summer we'll talk with him about that amazing career and what comes next but first welcome my dear and wonderful friend
1: Mark Volpe so glad to be able to talk to you Thank you, Alan, and you know, thank you for years of conversations, and I've always admired what you built in, in public radio, and certainly I was just before we went on air about your book. You said Andrew got a $5 million advance, you got a $10 million advance for the book you did with Mario, yeah, you uh, which you obviously invested right back, back into the a, station.
0: Yeah, he got a $5 million advance, and I got a Zilcho advance. In fact, they're lucky that I didn't have to pay to post
1: it's a Which great book, I, for the, I, I have no idea whether it's still in print, but I just spent the last Which couple of weeks working through it. And when I, Listen, when I was in Detroit, I don't know if it was just a 50,000-watt station, but occasionally you could hear you know, Mario and me coming across from Windsor or coming from DET. I don't know your syndication, but you know, long before I met you, I heard your voice, and Mario I still came show. to Tangwood. <laughs> so
0: the Me and Mario show, Mark Wolpe, was on many, many stations. It was on in Boston. I know that. It was on in New York City, and it was on in every public radio station, I believe, in New York State. And we did it for a lot, a lot of years. I don't really know. Somebody told me 18 years. Somebody told me 12 years. But in any case, it was a lot. And you know what broke us up, me and Mario? Andrew. The son? He decided he would run against Carl McCall
1: first oh yeah Uh, the african-american and you 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 didn't think Andrew was quite ready or was jumping the queue I remember you called that out and you know blood's pretty thick over there
0: that's right blood was pretty thick you're exactly right let's talk about you not about me let's talk about why you decided to retire I'm a little bit disappointed No, not a little bit. I'm sure your replacement will be great, but you know, I had such admiration and always have for you and what you've been able to do, both as a lawyer, a musician, and the guy who knew how to handle one crisis after another. It's been an extraordinary run. Why did you decide to do it?
1: I think the operative word there was crises. (laughs) You know, I, 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 you know, was in Boston 23 years. Prior to that, I was in. Detroit for seven years, and there there wasn't really an artistic challenge. It was an urban challenge, and so we were one of the catalysts for the urban renewal that Detroit's uh, experiencing, and then prior to that, a couple of years as my dad's boss in Minnesota, and, and so I, I did it for 38 years, and, and and ultimately, you know, I got tired of, of working 50, 51 weeks a year, working... You know, seventy-five to eighty hours a week, and and you know, I just at a certain point, there's there's I, I you know, love the Boston Symphony. I love Tangwood. Uh Certainly, will keep that as part of my life and hear concerts. And don't don't I just don't want to work that hard. I do want to do. I have all sorts of ideas and have had many conversations with with you know, keeping intellectually engaged and a lot of teaching. You we were obviously uh, a professor. And then uh, I do a little bit of speaking and I have uh, projects to possibly pursue in Europe and Asia. And, um, can, you know, obviously some of this is dependent on COVID. You know, we, we're we a little spoiled here in Boston and Massachusetts. But I think we're 70 percent vaccinated. I'm, I'm talking to the Ozawa clan and helping them with a few things. And it's amazing they're going forward with the Olympics with five, you know, five, six percent of the Japanese population vaccinated. So so you know, eventually I'll get to Asia and, and, and do a few things with CG. and, uh, you know, I have a few projects in Europe and, and it'll be great to have, you know, a, a beginning and end <laughs> and, and then move on to something else. And I've always enjoyed uh, teaching and so there. I think i am scheduled already for five or six or seven. I've, I've lost count, you know, three, four, five-day residencies and I think I'm in three, three time you know, zones uh, and it's not for me to announce the universities will announce it, but, but. Uh, kind of kind of fun to, to do that and specific topics I do. I do a whole spiel, you know, starting actually with the Greeks and Romans on, on you know, cultural institutions uh, and what they can do as a catalyst for, for, you know, urban development. And sometimes it goes beyond urban development because our project, the Lindy Center, uh, hard to describe Tanguit as urban, but certainly as a development that had, you know, significance, you know, beyond the actual Eight-week festival at Tangwood, and and I do the whole thing on you know, Robert Moses, a name you would certainly know as a great historian. Uh, people forget, you know, Lincoln Center. They go around you know, high-end housing, you know, good restaurants, you know. But but you know, look at West Side Story. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, there's a reason it wasn't East Side Story. Uh, you probably know that better than anybody. It was West Side Story, and and mm. Robert Moses, you know, beyond beyond the parkways, beyond some of the other stuff you could take exception to, bridges and cars, cars, cars. But you know, Lincoln Center came, you know, you know, out of out of that and that was one of the great urban renewal projects. We did a quarter of a billion dollar development around the hall in Detroit that, that was a catalyst for a huge, you know, you know, obviously renaissance of some magnitude in Detroit. And you know, Boston doesn't need a renaissance <laughs> real estate wise, but we did a few things here. And of course Tanglewood, uh, that's been been what's that's what makes the Boston Symphony unique. And we had this great opportunity, you know, to build a, you know, the only four season buildings on the, the campus, you know, beyond where the guys who cut the grass and all that hang out in a, in a, in a frankly barn, you know, and create content and obviously truncated by the pandemic, but, but soon to be yeah it resumed uh, off season. And certainly we're going to have a Tangwood season this, this year. So with the audience, obviously scaled back given what we're still grappling with.
0: Well, you know that my respect for you is unlimited, and I'm just unhappy that we're not going to have you at the helm now. Again, this isn't to say anything bad about anybody who comes on next, but it is to say that personally, you know, your sense of humor, your ability to put things into perspective— The fact that you are a lawyer and that you are an instrumentalist and that you are all of these other things really came together to make an extraordinary imprint on so many of us that it's going to take a little bit of reorientation for us. Now, Mark, the idea of a book is very important. I think you have to sit down and write that book because nobody has had that kind of experience that you have. And I really want to see that put down so that we can all read it and study it. What about that idea?
1: Well, I mean, I've talked to a couple of literary agents about that possibility. And and candidly, I'm I'm already thinking movie rights and who would play Alan Chartok. And the list is (laughs) is, is actually too, too long. I told my, my lovely spouse that I was thinking of Kate Winslet to play my spouse. And then she said, who is going to play you? And I said, well, I would, that would be me. But she wasn't too keen on that idea. But but that aside, you know, you can go one of two two ways with that. You know, I've had... 38 years in the business I, I frankly longer than that my dad as you know you'll comment is this a trumpet player and I, I grew up backstage and, and you know I, I met Heifetz and Rubenstein and and, and the Smothers brothers you know, when I was I don't know 12 to 7 8 10 you know so I I you know a lot of stories whether some some are you know, worth telling, possibly you know whether I should tell some. That's <laughs> a different question, but we're thinking about it. I, I'm much more interested in, in the human dimension than a textbook, and 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 you know I'll do some of that in, in the various universities I'm, I'm visiting, and you know I, they don't need me to write a book about finance or marketing or investment or labor or employment law. There are plenty of people that can do that, but you know, people ask what business you're in. Of course, we're in the business of producing concerts and content and all that, but we're in the relationship business. You know, relationship you know within the orchestra, with our artists, with our audience, with our, our media friends, and so that that's and there's a lot of you know re, you know relationships that you know have developed over multiple decades, and, and you know, telling you know some, some fun stuff, and and hopefully oh, with right. you know, a little messaging behind it. But, but but you know you're, you're, you're right I you, you were commenting on my tenure one, one thing I'll point out I just came out of a meeting or a little bit of a party for me from the guys who and the women who run New York and Chicago and LA and San Francisco and Philadelphia the big orchestra's Cleveland uh, and and you know they're, they're saying and everyone said there's, n- there's probably going forward no one gonna last more than 23 years is almost unheard of in today's environment of orchestras. And it's a little bit like college presidents. You know, I was back and forth with Larry Bacall, the president of Harvard. You know, the average tenure of a college president now is six, seven years. That's I right. mean, the, the fundraising pressure, you know, I'm, I'm leaving this place. I came in here, I think we had $140 million in the endowment. There's about $540 million now. I mean, the fundraising right. pressure, I have to say, you know, when you talked of college presidents. Look at Think about the days, I'll stay away from Harvard, but, you know, Yale, Bart Giamatti, Kingman Brewster, these legendary figures that had the soapbox and and what they said mattered in public policy and politics, and and now preponderance of the job is fundraising. And our positions are getting a little bit like that, too. And I got into the business because I love the content, I love musicians, I love artists, I love the institutional dimension of what we do. But, you know, there's such a pressure, a financial pressure, obviously, further aggravated the pandemic, that that's become, I don't want to say all-consuming, but it's certainly become a major part of the job. And that's that's less interesting to me than the actual creative part.
0: Mark Volpe, how do you raise money? Do you go to people and sit across the table and say to them,
1: can you give us a million dollars? I mean, how does that work? You have to first do research because asking someone – I mean, there's an old adage. I mean, the quickest way to wait, raise $10 million is make one ask of someone who has $10 million and has disposable position to do it. I, that, that's a glib aside. I mean, I do it you know, sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly. It, it all depends on who you're talking to you have to do your research you have to have some sense you know now in the period of time where where the internet is pervasive there's no such thing as privacy it's amazing what you can find out i mean uh, so much stuff is publicly known beyond real estate i mean you can always tell unless people are using third parties or using corporate entities you know how much real estate they have and you can always you know public ownership of stock and all that's pretty easy to you know find out that being said that's just part of it you you have to go to someone with capacity and then and there's a question of propensity and the question of propensity, if you believe in the mission, if you believe in the specific cause, you know, I mean, when we raise money for Tangled, we go to people that have absolutely no interest in Boston. You know, <laughs> I mean, some, I mean, some do, but some, you yeah, many don't. And whether they're in New York or Washington, their their connection with us, even though we're one corporate entity, is is Tangled. So you would never sit there and say, you know, to them, oh, we, 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 we need new chairs for Symphony Hall or or we need, you know, to redo the women's bathrooms. In Symphony. That's totally irrelevant. But if you have something to do with the school, you know the Tangwood Music Center, the you know the kids, or you have something at you know, the physical plant, the spectacular beauty of Tangwood, then obviously, you know that's what you're selling. You're selling a vision. You're selling a a future. At some point, you're selling immortality. Some people do want to have their names on things. Other people are very comfortable you know, with, with anonymous gifts, and, and I respect both. I mean, that's a personal choice, and the reality is you've got to know the person. You've got to have a relationship, and so you, you have to have that personal connection, but more importantly, you have to have the case.
0: You know, Mark, that all makes a lot of sense to me, but you raise an interesting point, and that is you have this place called the Boston Symphony, and then you have Tanglewood. And there is a certain difference. I mean, the people who come up from New York and populate the Berkshires and, you know, the Albany area and everything else, they know from Tanglewood. Most of them don't know from the Boston Symphony's home base. Did it take you a while to reconcile all of that, that difference?
1: No, because I think the, the genius that, that certainly precedes me, uh, and I think part of the enormous success, why, why is Boston's, you know, budget you know, $30, $40 million more than Chicago, which is a much larger city, or Philadelphia, which is a larger city, you know, or San Francisco, which, which you know, has an explosion of wealth beyond what anybody can imagine. And, and it's, it's because of the multi brand strategy. So you, you had Fiedler, I mean, there were plenty of pops conductors before Fiedler, but he made the, you know, the pops what it is and he Americanized the Boston pops. And then obviously you have, you know, Symphony Hall, which is a brand unto itself, of course, the orchestra. And then what makes this absolutely unique is Tangwood. and and unlike other orchestras, we have a significant education arm you know we have an edu- all orchestras have education programs we do likewise in Boston. but the Tangwood Music Center, you know starting with you know first class Leonard Bernstein, Aaron Colpen had the faculty, you know, Bert Bacharach, Wynton Marcellus, you know you know Claudio Bottle, I mean Zubin Mehta. I mean all sorts of famous people so so you know it, it it's an incredible uh, asset and and it's 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 something so i I knew. Early on, that that you know, we had multiple constituencies, uh, multiple. We have multiple annual funds. You know, we don't have one annual fund. We have a Boston annual fund, we have a Boston Pops annual fund, we have a Tangoid annual fund, and we have an t- annual fund for the school. You know, so so we have multiple annual funds. You know, I, I figured out you know right away when I was looking at the operating statement and the balance sheet and all that that that, that that's the the genius. Uh, and, and why, you know, in terms of, of sophistication and, and 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 you know ultimate uh, complexity, the, the Boston Symphony, relative to the rest of the orchestra field, you know, in, in a city that you know, what well, it's Boston, the eighth, ninth, tenth largest market in the country, uh, you know, it's not, it's not, you know, and and our our, our budget is probably forty million dollars more than New York Philharmonic, you know, thirty million dollars, whatever the number is, wow. you know, and and I, I, you know, so so ultimately. You know, and and you're you're selling a future, but you're also looking to. I mean, you know, this balance of tradition and innovation. I mean, the the tradition's worth you know worth worth noting, and the importance of Tanglewood. I mean, when you think about the world in the late 40s, early 50s. You know, Marshall hadn't rebuilt. You know, Europe and and MacArthur was you know, obviously doing stuff in Japan, but but the, the Tanglewood was the epicenter of music. I mean that's that one of the reasons all those great names we can sit here and show off and list. Excuse me, I'm losing my voice. Uh, so I think my fourth interview of the day. Um, wow. The, 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 yeah, the last one I think is New York Times tonight at seven o'clock. So. <laughs> well, <laughs> they'll, they'll just have to oh, wait. wait their turns. Yeah. Uh, the, you 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 bet. I put them last. <laughs> <You're>, but but <laughs> in, 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 anyway, uh, to finish the story, I mean the the, the reality is, is 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 you know t- Tanglewood you know, resonates in, in so many ways and, and was, you know, now there's worlds you know, Europe's come back, Asia's come back, you know, you can always t- tell when you see an infusion of, 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 of whenever there's a middle class, you know, infusion of Japanese musicians right after, you know, middle class evolved in, in Japan, likewise Korea, and then a little later China, you know, and that all fed into tango as well. So, so I mean, Seiji was sort of an anomaly. Seiji was, of course, ahead of his time, you know, coming here in 1960 and all of that. So, you know, with Tangwood, it's just embarrassing. It gives us an advantage no other orchestra has.
0: You mentioned Seiji. A great favorite, a great success. How'd you land him?
1: Well, I was way before I was here, but he, he is a family friend. His daughter was in our wedding party. <laughs> you know, so, so I, you know, I, I, my my wife was his assistant. So I think, you know, candidly, there was just such a raw talent and, and such an instinct, musical instinct, that, you know, Bernstein saw it and immediately made him assistant in New York, you know, and so he got trained in in New York. And then von Karin, who was a very powerful force in Germany, in Berlin in particular, saw him and championed him and you know, and then he went to Toronto, became a music director as a baby, and then San Francisco, and then of course culminating in Boston. And you know, I still frankly talk to his family virtually you know, every week or two. And uh, you know, he's had a run of bad luck health wise. But he's got a grandson keeps him going and I talked to him and he's wearing his Red Sox hat and his Red Sox jersey, which Every time I get Red Sox print for him, I just put it in a box and send it to Seiji. He, he, you know, he wears, he wears it proudly. So anyhow, yeah. He, and unfortunately, you, Red Sox didn't win any World Series until he left. <laughs> I mean, he, they got there in '86. They got there one other time with his, his tenure, but did, didn't win it. So he came back. I can't remember was it because he stayed. We had some fun with him. He came back uh, when they got the World Series. Flew to, flew from <laughs> to Tokyo to Boston to go to a few World Series games. I'll never forget
0: it because Kim Smedbig at the time now Kim Taylor. I was going to do an interview with him, and we were sitting around, and there was another reporter there, and Kim whispered my ear, and she said, ask him about the Red Sox. So oh, yeah. so I asked him about the Red Sox, Mark, and he had a big smile on his face, and he began to talk about it, having been invited into the dugout and all oh, the rest the dugout, of it. The dugout,
1: the clubhouse. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> and then there was a reporter there who said, yes, but how about the high C, in the so-and-so symphony.
1: Yeah, whatever. Um, Yeah,
0: yeah, And he said, yes, but about the Red
1: Sox. (laughs) Uh, Well, I'll tell you a story. We were sitting there. They had a formal tea ceremony when Nomo was on it. He was a Japanese player in the Red Sox. And so we did this, and then they snuck us into the dugout. And there's a real tight rule in Major League Baseball that only players and coaches can be in the dugout. And the umpire finally—I think the first base umpire saw it and signal to the home plate. So we we got thrown out, <laughs> thrown out of the dugout. They let us stay in the game. But Zagi, you know, have a beer and hot dog. Listen, he scared the hell out of me a few times because we would go. You know, the game started at seven o'clock, and we'd be sitting at Fenway. And it's 7:45, and I say, Seiji, our concert starts at 8:05. No, no, and you know, and the, the problem is if there's like men on second and third and whatever, you know. So I'd be begging him, you know. Papino, the driver's waiting outside, you know, the gate in Fenway. I said, Hey, we gotta go. You got 2,000, 2,500 people in the hall, and then. Candidly, I mean they're not, you know it always says in the ticket once you leave, you can't come back. that rule applies to everybody but Sagey. so you know he he constantly be over at nine fifty five whatever and its you know if one of those Yankees games which would go four hours or something without i mean he'd change out of his tails in ten seconds and then we'd go and back in the car and we'd watch the eighth and ninth innings. I mean we went to a bunch of foot, football games, and he was you know other than hockey 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 didn't begin to understand you know and I, don't, I don't think we went to many cricket matches for that matter either but other than that basketball and football and baseball. You know, I Andres, you know, of course Latvia they have some really great basketball players and great hockey players and that that's been fun. We've been to a few Celtics games, but I took him to a an American football game and it, it 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 didn't make any sense at all. <laughs> you know, sure. no, cuz you know, he spent some time in the UK, you know, and and certainly yeah. sees rugby, but you know, as soon as the ball went forward, he didn't quite quite get what that was all about. But anyway,
0: I wanted to ask you as long as we're on say, G, and as long as we know that you're a great musician yourself,
1: Clarinet. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, you,
0: are, you are. and had, I was. <laughs>
1: I'm not sure I was ever great. Had, but
0: And had this tremendous background in music as well as administration. But here's something I've never quite understood, and this says more about my failure than anything else, and that is what does make a great conductor? I mean, you look up there, and you see the conductor. has got the baton in their hand and doing their thing. What is it that distinguishes them as great? It's a fascinating question,
1: and when you think about it, we're we're an oral art form. You know, we're all about sound, and the one person on stage who's not making any sound, hopefully, is the conductor. <laughs> you know, so so somehow through you know, frankly, uh, the incredible musical knowledge many of them have, not all, uh, through the force of musical personality, through through uh, an intrinsic you know set of leadership skills they they get 100 disparate parts uh to to function as a coherent you know whole and and somehow bring unanimity of purpose i mean it's a perfect metaphor for society i mean if government worked the way or- a big orchestra works and especially with a great conductor you know we'd be in nirvana i mean i i you know <laughs> we don't probably want to go go too far astray and start talking about politics but but and and part of what you you don't see on, in the performance is what happens in rehearsal I mean, you know, they're they're good in you know, football. They're you know they're good game coaches. But but you know, t- talk to Belichick. It's all in the and all in the practices. You know, all the scheming, all the planning, all the thinking is happening. And, and we don't call them practices, and we call them rehearsals. And so at that point, the conductor is establishing the balances and you know, what what the voicing. You know, what what voices you want to hear predominantly. What voices are are, are frankly uh, more in the background. Uh, you know, the counterpunnel. Uh, elements of 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 music, the architecture of music. Uh, cer- certainly, if there you know, if there are problems with with pitch or intonation, you know uh, you know. When by the time you get to the concert, even in a high high you know, humidity day at Tanguit, it, it, it's amazing how how they just lock into various playing in tune. Which you know you hear a, a seventh grader or a sixth grader play violin, you know you know what it sounds like when it's not in tune. You know unless there's some genius. So so ultimately you know the conductor does all that and the other thing the conductor does you know is is, is it's the human you know you you you're talking about 100 people and and, and at some level it's a family and a family big extended family and, and obvious pockets of dysfunction and that's the person you know all all of I don't want to call it discipline but but all all of the you know issues that come up uh you know personal performance all that kind of stuff you know, you know, go through you know me and uh, you know, the CEO and the conductor, and, and you you want a, you know, you know, humane place, and 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 you know that's that's changed over time. I mean, the days of Toscanini, and name ever, I think most of your listeners have heard of, or Fritz Reiner, or George Zell, you know, screaming, firing people in the middle of rehearsals, throwing batons, yeah. you know, that that doesn't that doesn't work in today's you know, orchestra would just walk off stage, you know, orchestra is heavily unionized and and organized and, and, you know, they, and rightly so they would, they would, you know, they, they wouldn't, you know, I mean, they, they don't mind a little pressure. They don't mind obviously, you know, being, being, you know, instructor being, being, you know, uh, hopefully inspired. Uh, But, but no, you know, behavior, you know, there's no, no tolerance for, for bad behavior anymore. Uh, Certainly was even when I started, you know, Conductors could throw fits in the podium and act like immature children, and they could get away with it. Not today.
0: Have you ever had to intervene in a conductor, musician,
1: temp Oh, oh <laughs> 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 yeah. uh, virtually every month. You know, uh, really? I mean, and uh, some are more intense than others, and and you know, and, and and you know, Andres is a colleague. Andres is 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 you know certainly you know no one no one. Uh, mistakes him for anything other than the music director, and and, and certainly the final authority musically in terms of you know, various matters. But but and his, his style is very much collegial. I mean, they're colleagues, you know. But other conductors, you know, no, no. I, I've said in many many meetings, uh, uh, and those probably can't be in the book. You know. <laughs> uh, but but with 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 with. Players and working through various matters and 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 trying to you know do it in a respectful way and do a way that you know keeps you know everyone's integrity intact as much as possible and hopefully not publicly. Um, but but that that's you know that that's a partnership that that you better have between the president and the music director to to really you know and 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 with Andres you know I I mean you know I know it's. Uh, you know, you know, a controversial name in our, our history, but but Jim Levine uh, left Andres an orchestra in, in fantastic artistic shape personnel-wise. I mean, the orchestra is in a real sweet spot. It's always been a great orchestra. But demographically speaking and, and every other way, you know, we have, you know, frankly, you know, it's a very interesting mix of really experienced players, you know, mid-career people and, and, and relatively younger people. And it's the right blend right now in the orchestra. And and so Andres has said, you know, less of that than most conductors because, you know, Levine did what he did, uh, and then uh, obviously, you know, he, his health precluded him from proceeding, and this all, you know, precedes, you know, some of the, uh, you know, egregious revelations. But, 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 uh, you know, uh, Andres' orchestra is in, is in fantastic shape, and then, then there's less of that now than there certainly was early in my tenure with Seiji.
0: We are talking to Mark Volpe, the outgoing headman at the Boston Symphony Orchestra in Tanglewood. And a man who I have incredible admiration for, and I think anybody else who knows what he's built here will feel the same way. Let me ask you a question. As a college professor, you're going to be doing some college teaching, too. We had tenure. Do do musicians have tenure?
1: Yes. They hired. uh, They're on probation for one, two, or three years. They're hired by the music director, but after vetting of a players' committee, uh, composed of, of audition committee, I should say, Composed of people, typically from the family of instruments, and then a few others. Uh, so, if it's a woodwind audition, if it's a clarinet player, you have oboe players, bassoon players, of course, clarinet players, flute players in the audition, and maybe a few string players, and, and maybe a you know, brass player, just just uh, provide some some uh, uh, color commentary. But but anyhow, that aside, uh, and they 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 do all the screening, and then they narrow it down to you know what candidates they think are qualified for the orchestra, and then the music director has. The final say, and then that that same committee meets uh, uh, periodically for the first year, and two, three, you know, and we get feedback, and, and and so at that point uh, they they have uh, they have tenure. So it, it's very similar to the academic. World, although the academic tenure, as you know, probably as a tenured professor is probably six, seven, eight years, whatever it is. But but ours is shorter. But that's you know very much part of the collective bargaining agreement uh, that we have with the the players, and that's been in existence. You know, and frankly, that's a, that's a result of all. The, you remember all the abuse I referenced earlier in that conversation with, you know, the the Reiners and the and the you know Tuscanyans, you know, firing people mid mid phrase. <laughs> you know, that 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 you know. Guess what? That got got, got you know. Uh, Players uh, agitated enough to, you know, get organized, and the union obviously interceded, and out of that comes collective bargaining agreements with with uh, provisions for hiring. And the other thing is, as you know, a conductor, you know, when my dad auditioned for God knows how symphony in the early 50s, there were 20 people auditioning, 20, 25 people. Now, you know, we could have upwards of three, four, five hundred people. You know, and 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 so we're, you know, the conductor can't screen 500 people, so. You know, in the first rounds, are ten ten tend to be taping. You know, it's people make tapes and 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 then they submit them, and then and then you know thirty forty get invited to Boston to play an audition, and then then from there, you know, you have three four rounds. You know, so that that's sort of the process. But but there is tenure. No tenure for the staff, <laughs> but but right. the musicians have always had tenure. My my tenure is day to day. That's the way I always looked at it.
0: How were you evaluated as the head guy? Was there a personnel committee? At the Boston Symphony,
1: yeah, um, there's a comp committee. You know, there's a body of law called intermediate sanctions in the IRS code, and I don't. Your listeners are already reaching for the Dallas. So I shouldn't go any farther than that. Uh, uh, and they, and and they, they, uh, you know, they, they look at comparables. Uh, I, I always argue there's no comparable to Boston, but, but any, anyway, and then they, they, they make recommendation. You know, and, and you know, I, I I feel I get reviewed every day. I get reviewed by the players. I get reviewed by the staff. I get reviewed by various board committees. I get reviewed by you all. <laughs> I mean, you know, so, I, I, you know, there is a formal, you know, mechanism for, for you know, uh, uh, compensation. Review, but but I, I I've never never focused so much on on annual reviews, and I have never really you know got hung up on that even for my own direct reports. I mean I, we live with these you know yeah, the direct reports to me meet at least you know three hours a week. If there's a performance issue, I don't wait a year to tell them put it that way. But I have a fantastic team. And part of what you we do. have here we have continuity. You know you 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 you, you obviously. Uh, work a lot with Bernadette, you know, Bernadette, Bernadette was here before I was here, you know, our, our, our Supreme press person, you know, Tony Fogg was here a couple of years before I was here, you know, and I I've had, you know, you know, one CFO and then uh, he, he finally retired after, I don't know, 25 years and have another terrific CFO you know, Evelyn bar. So, I mean, we have very little turnover. It, it's in other orchestras. You, you'd be amazed. I mean, I, I've been here and I think uh, Chicago's had four, Presidents, San Francisco's had at least three. L.A.'s had four or five. You know, so there's tons of turnover. You know, there's burnout jobs and all that. And not just my position, but we have institutional memory, we have continuity. You know, the people that that you know run Tangwood, Bobby Lahart's been. You know, his father was there before he was there. And so, you know, for for many of us, you know, it's not a job, it's a cause. You know, so obviously, much- you know, got to support your family and have you know pay make your house payments, but it's a cause. So, Mark Volpe, we argued
0: about this before. I said you were a great clarinet player. You thought you might have been pretty good at one point. But do you ever, you know, wake up in the morning and just say, today I'm going to beg them to let me play in the clarinet section of the Boston Symphony?
1: I have to say that is a fantasy. I'm not in shape. You know, I would never do it to the Boston Symphony. When I played in Baltimore, uh, I mean, I, I was I, I was actually, you know, you know the Joe manager, whatever my title was, Back, you know, titles keep on changing. Uh, and and uh, I played quite a bit. And then my last week there, I played in the orchestra, but I was... in you know, I was in, in, in shape. I was, I, at one point, the joke, you know, you know, I was the highest paid third clarinet in the history of third clarinet. And the union insisted I get paid for playing clarinet. I, I didn't want to get paid. I just frankly wrote a check back to the orchestra as a contribution for my clarinet salary. You know, and I always felt I didn't want to take, you know, work away from someone who really needed the work. But the orchestra was adamant. And, you know, I played a bunch of concerts there uh, as I was leaving. And, and you know, I, I think the last week I decided it was too emotional and I was leaving Baltimore. I just couldn't play. You know, you want to play... Maybe not at the level, but close enough to the level that you're not embarrassing yourself or anybody around you. And so I I did that, but you know, in Boston's another world. So I mean, I wouldn't do that to my my wonderful friends. Although my uh, the, Tom Martin, the uh, principal in the Boston Pops and assistant principal, and, and the Symphony, he, he, his gift to me was a bunch of reeds. Uh, we studied with the same teacher. We both went to Eastman, you know. And he's one of the reasons I went into management. I heard him play. He's two years younger, two three years younger than I. <laughs> I said, that's the standard, forget it. <laughs> you know, I'm going to law school. I'm going to the I'm getting all that rat race. Because you, know? you go to audition, you, you see people that are 32 years old, their spouses are still supporting them, and that was just too depressing. And I didn't want that as my life. Who's the greatest clarinetist in the world right now? Everyone that plays in the Boston Symphony. How's that for an answer? I'll tell you who did the most for clarinet, and I got to know him, and I got to actually play for him a few times. Benny Goodman. Benny Goodman, really? you know, King of Swing. He commissioned Copland. He commissioned Bartok. Almost all the great clarinet repertoire of you know 20th century paid for. You know, I could he had, he had you know, fantastic obvious income from from being you know I mean in the 30s and the 40s he was you know was you know and the other thing about Benny which people don't realize he was one of the guys who integrated Carnegie Hall because he had Lionel Hampton playing playing vibes and he had Teddy World, he, he did and, okay. and, and he and he forced Carnegie you know which had they had a color barrier he said you know and he was so powerful and so big. I can't remember. I don't know if it's before the war. I don't know if it's '39 or '40 or, what, or you know, before we were in the war. But Carnegie had to change your policy because Benny says I, I come with my guys, you know. And I'll tell you another sweet story. I mean, he was a tough teacher. I took a bunch of lessons, but I had a, a friend who was after me in the Wait, wait,
0: wait, wait, and, wait. You uh, took lessons with Benny Goodman?
1: Yeah, I, t- I took two or three lessons with Benny Goodman. Just, just, yeah. uh, you know, he was playing in Minnesota. I, I'm not. Sh- you, you probably have noticed I'm not shy. <laughs> and, and I and I said, can can I can I play for you? and he said you know how much are you going to pay me and i said i'm paying you the fee you know, for, for playing with the orchestra that's enough you know and he said he laughed he said, okay you know so i i i played for him it was terrifying i i have to say wow. and and he he doesn't suffer fools <laughs> maybe i was foolish playing for him uh i don't know if i'm a total fool and and but i'll tell you the sweetest thing i i arranged for someone else to play uh after me uh who was frankly uh le- less fortunate financially and, and was playing on a really inferior instrument. And Benny, you know, Benny had many clarinets. He turned around and gave the, gave the, the, the person his clarinet. Wow. And he said, okay, I'm going to finish a lesson on your clarinet. No, no, it's yours to keep. Wow. Yeah. I mean,
0: yeah. You know, it's so interesting that you mentioned that. I'm sorry for telling you the story because it's your interview, but my mother, who was a big educator on the west side of Manhattan, gave out book covers. Do you remember book covers at all? Oh, yeah.
1: Oh, of course. Um,
0: she gave out book covers, and she had all of those guys from the Benny Goodman Quartet, <laughs> Lionel Hampton, Teddy Wilson, and they were all listed, and their faces were on it, and it said at the bottom, they all made up the Benny Goodman Quartet. So you really were on the money when you described it, because at the time it was an extraordinary thing for anybody to do, and he did it.
1: Oh, yeah. Sweet. No, he he forced the issue, and, and you know, I mean, it, I, it's one of those great things about— Doing this for for almost 40 years, you know, you know Bobby McFerrin's father was one of the guys, you know, one of the great great jazz singers. But his his father was one of the guys who broke the color barrier at the Met, you know. Yeah. And and uh, you know Robert, I mean, so so you know, and I I'll tell you one of the most incredibly impactful moments of my life was I was recruiting Jimmy DePriest to come conduct in Detroit, a very prominent African American composer. And I go to Portland, where he was music director in Portland, Oregon, and I knock on the door, and, and the door opens, and there's Marion Anderson. Oh, yeah. Marion was his aunt. Yeah. My yeah. knees buckled. And when I went to Detroit, uh, w- head of the NAACP there, Arthur was one of my, my, my really good friends, and, he, and, and uh, he would always seat me at various functions, along with Damon Keith, who was a federal judge, should, should have been on the Supreme Court, uh, next, next to Rosa Parks. And Rosa was a little bit Gaga. You know, uh, Marion Mar- had all her marbles. So I, I sat with her at dinner, and just you know, Eleanor Roosevelt, and all the stories, and Constitution Hall, and all that. And that that wasn't the same experience with Rosa Parks. So I, you know, I'm I'm sitting there. You know, as a, a 60, 64 year old guy, and thinking, you know, uh, civil rights icons. You know, obviously, I never met King. King who's obviously assassinated 68 when I was all 11 years old. But I, I, I got to meet, you know, some of the most important figures, you know, and and have a conversation with them. And you know, and I don't know if that goes in the book or not, because it's very personal. But that's assuming I actually have the discipline to sit in, in a room by myself and write something. But, but anyway, we'll see. That has to go in the book. So let me ask you,
0: was there any one person you can think of, Mark Fulpe, who you met them, you never expected to meet them, you thought, this may be the apex of my meeting people career? Can you think of one?
1: No, not one. I mean, I've had in this job, I think I've I've met every president. Well, not Johnson. So I've had such a a privileged life, you know, and, and Hubert Humphrey. I'll never forget Hubert Humphrey in Minnesota backstage, remembering everyone's name. He hadn't been there in a year and a half. He did a Lincoln's portrait. Lincoln portrait normally takes 16 minutes. With Link, you know, he, he did the, the words of Lincoln, and, and then he did the annotized version, and so it took like 28 minutes. I mean, because he couldn't just read Lincoln's words. He had to comment on it. Walter Mondale was someone I got to know and, and frankly, became a friend, and then we had a running gag at the law school when I was there at Minnesota when he was reestablishing his political base, so I always tease him about giving me a low grade in law school and appealing it I actually last time I appealed it it was when he got the highest honor, civilian honor from Japanese government, uh and he was he was there uh and and and, and frankly uh, Seiji was the other recipient and Seiji couldn't make it because he had a had the throat cancer situation. So I, I actually in front of a thousand Japanese business guys appealed my grade one and you could see their faces, they were horrified. I'm sitting there challenging, you know, a former vice president until you know until Walter thought it was one of the funnier things he, he saw. So Walter had a good time with that. And, uh, well, talk about uh, losses. He was one of the really nice men, you know. And, and it's funny. I mean, Hubert Humphrey, you know, can you imagine today's politics? He died, and he had no estate. He had no money, you know. I, I, you yeah, know, yeah, I, I, yeah. Yeah, you know, and then my, my dad was, in, you know, they had to play the funeral, you know, and then he we was buried, obviously, in Minneapolis. And, and you know, Muriel had to get married. I mean, she was married, like, three four months after Hubert just uh, paid the debts. She had to marry a Republican, of all things. Oh, my God. For, for a Humphrey.
0: Yeah. Speaking of which, did you ever meet Donald Trump? Yes,
1: oh, uh, a couple of times. Life? Oh, God. <laughs> I met him at Swat Stadium, and I met him once in, in New York. And I, uh, his attention span is shorter than mine, put it that way. It's a polite way of putting it. And I was taken to his table, and I couldn't tell which one was the spouse and which one was the daughter. <laughs> you know, I, it was too strange for words, you know. But beyond that, I shouldn't say anything.
0: So what has he done to the arts in America Anything interesting? Nothing.
1: No, no, no. He's always a sports guy. He owned the New Jersey Generals. He, you know, he bought the contract of Herschel Walker, and I don't think he ever got into. Yeah, you know, and, and he always wanted to play in that space. Obviously, beyond his real estate, whatever. But no, he was never. I, I saw him at one cultural function in New York, but it was clear he was not. Uh, he was only there to be seen. So, how has he affected the politics of the arts? It didn't exist. It wasn't on the screen. You know, the tax code. The one thing that happened with that major tax. Reform is I was concerned at one point that the charitable deduction was gonna go by the wayside and that was certainly contemplated by you know one or two or three committees that had jurisdiction over that, that bill and, and fortunately a preponderance of the charitable giving is actually in the churches and and if you look at at you know percentage of population that give to charitable causes, you wouldn't necessarily come to this instinctively, but you know Alabama and Mississippi giving to the southern baptist church and and you know, in Utah with the tithing of the Mormon church, so that I think preserved you know the charitable deduction because you know look in Europe, what we do is deemed to be of such value that the government you know frankly subsidizes culture and arts. But here in America, you know, along with a good part of the social service, along with education, along with medical research, there's direct funding but modest and, and, and basically the way most of it's funded is through private philanthropy and the tax code. You know, we, we have a tax code that incentivizes giving to hopefully the public radio stations of the world as well. And so that, that was a public policy decision you know, made decades ago that certain activities uh, were of such value in, in the broadest sense of community and society that they warranted special tax treatment. And and what you do is one, and what I do is another, and there's so many others. So that that's how we get funded indirectly through the government.
0: Mark Volpe, uh, tell me about regrets. Do you have any regrets that you can tell us about?
1: Yeah, I, I would say the one regret I didn't quite get done here, and I, I, I shared this with a few other press outlets uh, that didn't really dwell on it. Uh, you know, and when I was in Detroit, we did a quarter of a billion dollar development around the hall. We built a performing arts high school. We built... Uh, uh, yeah, headquarters office building for the, you know, I bought 18 acres of property. You you help pay for it, Alan, because uh, we got a ton of HUD money to knock down basically a major crack corridor. You know, I was always worried we were going to kill somebody because we had to bring dogs in to sniff between the walls in these buildings. It was it was Detroit. It was, you know, it was right in the Cask. Anybody knows Detroit, the cast Corridor, which is the major crack corridor, one of the major ones in the country. So we bought all this real estate around the hall, and, and 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 you know built a parking deck, built some restaurants, built offices, built you know all all sorts of things, and that was a catalyst. So we we own, you know, while I was here, we bought property around the hall, and some of the property already existed. And and I, I not that Boston needs, you know, urban you know renewal, at, you know, in our neighborhood, it doesn't. But 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 I I had this you know vision, and I could never get it through. You know, we had like three or four false starts. You know, with with uh, you know, couldn't get through the rest of the board to to invest in in. in frankly, we have the greatest hall in, in the world here, uh, and, and Symphony Hall, are one of the great halls in the world, and 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 surrounded by facilities that are just inadequate. And so, and and then you know, all the as we evolve into institution that's going to be more, you know, frankly externally focused and civically engaged, and having you know spaces to do education, spaces to do like we have a tanguid you know, Tanguin. You know the the lindy center and all the studios we have there uh like, likewise and many other buildings you know we don't have that here you know all that pedagogy that goes on in tango we we can't we couldn't do here we don't have the spaces and so i i i thought you know and then obviously it could be a resource for the broader community but we never got it done and we certainly you know took three four runs at it and didn't get it done so i don't know if that's a regret there's always you know the, the real estate we bought for for x is now worth 5x you know because of the boston market mm-hmm. so it's, it's been, you know it's only showing up in the balance sheet as x but but it's worth a lot more so it's it's been a good investment and one one actually and generates significant investment income because it's, it's leased out uh both actually now are leased out so so we're making money off it but that wasn't the idea the idea wasn't you know investment property the idea was to to really enhance the hall experience and then really connect us to the rest of the neighborhood
0: Mark Fulpe, do you ever see a time when Tanglewood will be more important in terms of the holdings of the Boston Symphony
1: than Boston? No, no, I think we're, you know, the reality is we're the Boston Symphony Orchestra. And as much as I love Tanglewood, and if you look at, you know, my 23 years, you know, we, we've we've significantly uh, enhanced Tanglewood. You know, we've expanded the season on the shoulders, brought many more popular artists back into, you know, the complement that we offer the berkshires you know we we built you know look you know, we've invested tens of millions of dollars i mean obviously the lindy center is a 30 plus million dollar project to begin with but beyond that you know tens of millions of dollars in, in the various um, physical plant and, and landscaping and and all that and we will continue to do that so i i don't look at it as competitive i i i look at it as, okay. as complementary So
0: we notice, as you just mentioned, that there are a lot of popular artists. Does that portend the the death of classical music eventually?
1: No, 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 no. uh, The death of classical music has been predicted for the last 80 years, 90 years. And surprise, surprise, we're still here. And surprise, surprise, we have an endowment of $540 million in, in cell pre pandemic year fifty three million dollars worth of tickets you know so so I don't see it it getting easier, but it's never been easy, and the marketplace is is much more competitive, much more complex, much more diverse, but we live in a in a totally you know Niche world I mean other than a few holidays, what brings the country together? I mean not much right now, and so so i I think there's this, you know certainly always going to be classical music and 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 frankly uh, part of our next focus has to be advocacy in the schools and, and bringing back more public school music education programs and certainly focus on the next generation of of not just uh, musicians which we do at the Tango Music Center but but the audience which we do through broader education initiatives so I'm always optimistic. And again, classical music has been supposedly in, in play or jeopardy for 70 years. And You know, starting, you read articles in the late 40s, no, there's going to be no more classical music. Okay.
0: So there are some names that come very close to you and to Tanglewood and to the Boston Symphony. One of them is JT or James Taylor, as we know him, who seems to just give to the Boston Symphony and to Tanglewood every year. Tell us about your relationship with him.
1: Well, I mean, he's just amazing in that a lot of the singers that have been around as long as James hit a peak and then and then you know the voice starts you know deteriorating. And as someone who, who's heard James sing year after year after year, I wouldn't argue he's getting better, but maybe he is. You know, I mean, it's amazing hearing a lot of singers and and hearing opera singers. I won't name names, but you know they hit 60, they hit 65, and and you know they have to change their repertoire, they have to rethink certain things. You know, James gets better. I mean, and it, it's it's an amazing phenomenon. I uh, uh, you know because it's it's it, you know there's there's basic phys, you know physiological uh, issues with with the human voice, your cords you know harden, your you know all that, but you know he's whatever he's doing, uh, it's it it's it's working. You know, and he's incredibly generous. And, you know, a lot of the popular artists, you know, make, you know, the ones who remain popular, like James, you know, make a lot of money. And I think hopefully he will continue to inspire others to be generous because they have had, you know, there's kind of an interesting trend. And you think about our, I'm a little younger than you, but not much, Alan. You know, think of what, you know, baseball and football players used to make, you know, and I mean, it was a big deal when, you know, Ted Williams would make 80000 you know. Can you imagine Ted Williams in today's market? It would be sure. thirty-five, forty million. I mean, and then you, you can you know compare nineteen sixty dollars to you know to, obviously even with the inflation, it's it, it's you know and the same thing with with artists, the same thing with movie stars, and the same thing you know the, uh, as as the cult of celebrity becomes ever more pervasive, it's obviously richly mm-hmm. rewarded. And, and James shares those rewards.
0: Okay. And talking about stars and names that are part of our existence here in the Berkshires, there is, of course, a guy I've called the greatest guy in the world, and that's Yo-Yo. And, you know, you see him there. You know, here's this great artist. I'm always astounded. This great artist is world famous, and yet you see him in the audience listening to someone else. That tells you more about him than
1: anything else could possibly. Well, he's a great friend and a great colleague to many artists and he's going to be there uh, supporting them. And it's not just Manny who has been his partner for God knows decades and decades. It's interesting. You mentioned Yo-Yo. Obviously I don't know when you're going to run this, but he's in, he's on stage right now. Uh, there's a, a, a thing called masterclass and he's, he's taping it right now on stage at symphony hall, <laughs> working with some kids and stuff. So, so, uh, he, he's, uh, cer- certainly, I don't want to you know, say anything, but, but, uh, you know, wonderful, Uh, complimentary uh, things. But but he's sort of the house cellist here in Boston and sort of at Tangoid he sees, uh, as you noted, a, a fixture not just on stage but in the audience as well. The house cellist for the world. He transcends classical music. Yeah, you know, you know Pavarotti did in a different way. Lenny did. You know, there are a few people that go beyond the circle that that obviously loves classical music. Do you ever get angry, really angry? Not that anybody was ever evidenced. You know, my kids might have a different perspective on that. But you know, you can't do what I do for 38 years and have an anger issue. And the one thing about 38 years, you know, I I don't want to suggest for a second you've seen it all because you say that and then all of a sudden something you know, new and I, I'm you know, surprised. A couple of times a year with stuff, so I'm not suggesting. But but you know you got to keep a perspective, and you know like when something goes wrong, you know and there was something going wrong this morning, and I'm not going to say what. I sit there, looked at the CFO, and I said, you know, no children were harmed. <laughs> you know, what we do is basically, you know, we're not making napalm, we're we're not, not making paper clips. You know, we're, we're making something that brings joy and solitude and, and inspiration to tens of thousands of people. So that's a perspective. It's a context.
0: Mark, what do you do when somebody gets hit by lightning at Tanglewood?
1: Well, I mean, what, uh, the worst time, us- uh, you know, one of the great things about Tangwood is, is you know, we have so many incredibly helpful people, you know, a lot of sheriffs. And, you know, when someone gets in lightning there, there's a sheriff there within 30 seconds. They know what they're doing. We, we, as, as you undoubtedly know, have ambulances because, you know, if we had to wait for an ambulance to come in from Great Barrington sure. or from Pittsfield, you know, so every major shed concert, we have you know, at least one ambulance, sometimes even two. So that the medical team's there in minute, two minutes. And, and, you know, I get letters from people saying you save our, our lives. Because, you know, if you're out in a rural setting and you have a coronary or you have some other type of medical episode, I mean, I always say the best place, if you're going to have a me- medical episode, have it in a concert hall or have it at Tanglet. Because there are, first of all, dozens of doctors around, <laughs> you know. And we, we very proactively have a whole medical team and all sorts of protocols that we know how to do it.
0: So, what happens when there is an emergency like that? You're in a great concert, it's a sensitive moment, and yet somebody has a heart attack does everything stop or do you know how to move people aside? how does that work
1: there are a few times where it's so conspicuous and it's right you know in my 23 years here you know once or twice in boston we had to stop uh but in tanglewood you know they, they tend to get there they're incredibly fast they're incredibly discreet uh you know they decide right away whether they can move the person or not move the person they're there with the stretcher they're there you know, rarely, you know, if it's on the lawn, it's different. On the lawn, it's, it's far enough removed, and, and obviously everyone around um, immediate vicinity is, is affected. But, you know, a lot of times you don't know what's going on on the lawn when you're sitting inside the shed, you know, so that it's it's where it is. But the protocols are such, and I think we have a phenomenally professional uh, front of house staff, and they know how to deal with it, and, and I get out of their way. You know, fr- frankly, that's not my core competency. You know, unless it's a real crisis, they don't even bother me.
0: And I noticed that with the popular artists, I love your popular artist concerts as well as the classical concerts. But I noticed that you stay within appropriate bounds of not having the really hard rock people on the stage during the popular. Who made that decision?
1: Well, you know, part of the Tangwood brand, if you're part of the marketing vernacular, part of the experience is a much better word, is, is the incredible grounds. You know and 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 you know that is that is you know and 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 so we're gonna book artists you know that that that, that they're, where we know their crowd respects you know and 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 can enjoy not to sound condescending or anything but 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 you know there there's certain acts we know because <laughs> it's part of the mantra where they're gonna destroy you know and that 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 you know we don't need it you know, and 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 you know, so so we we you know we have a pretty broad array of of popular artists, uh, but 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 their 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 crowds are hopefully enthusiastic and, and 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 really excited, but 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 you know not so excited that they they rip up you know everything. And you know I've been to a lot of sheds, and you know a Tangwood after a rock show. You know obviously they they got to clean up you know some garbage and stuff, but you know grounds look fine. You know other other venues after certain types of rock shows, man. You know, they they give up they give up the grass they they you know and I'm not going to name any names because I want to denigrate sister institutions but you know they're certainly, they're, they're, certainly. they're they're few you know that they they don't look like Tangwood you know they could but they 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 book acts that you know it's just not going to be
0: I don't think they could to be honest with you and
1: look let me finish this off
0: by saying I said it in the beginning I say it in the end. This is really very tough for me to take. You're leaving. And, you know, you're always welcome at the Shartox house. That's for sure. If you're in the Berkshires. Can I bring Berkshire my cousins? You can bring your cousins. We I are. have
1: 23 of them, I think. Last count.
0: We have a pretty big house. <laughs> okay. We, we would so love so to the see fundraising you. has been successful, Alan. See, you're doing just fine. We had a week. We didn't <laughs> raise money during the days, and we made a million dollars. And so it, wow, was, uh, it was extraordinary, and it's because we have a wonderful audience just as you do. And, in fact, there's a huge overlap between those audiences. So, Mark Wolfie, we want to thank you for this wonderful hour and for your being so kind to us over and over and over again, and a great sense of humor, great guy, and thank you for being here. My privilege, Alan.
1: You've been listening to Dr. Alan Chartok, President and CEO of WAMC Northeast Public Radio and Professor Emeritus at the University at Albany. For more information on WAMC's In Conversation with Alan series or to order a physical copy, call 1-800-323-9262 or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or on the Google Play Store.